Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guarda Cities ABC podcast YouTube series. We are a fast-growing series program that focuses on leadership and as well on profiling global leaders and inspiring people, both people from a lot of different industries, from a lot of different sectors, but people that want to change the world and as well they have a passion to show a more positive vision and a more I would say constructive as well narrative for our world. In this series we highlight ideas, products, inventions, software, books and organizations that reflect the multiple challenge opportunities we face in our cities and nations with the advent of society 5.0, digital transformation, 4AR, AI, blockchain and a lot of other terminology that is important for our world, but as well focus on sustainability and creating a more I would say more utopian vision of the world. But I think we need ideas more than ever. So this is part of the program of citiesabc.com. That is a platform we created focused on cities. And as well, it's partly distributed in the openbusinesscouncil.org, IntelligentHQ, and fashionabc.org as well. That is a key for this interview. This series are distributed as well in all the major podcasts for the ones they've been listening. And we are very focused on profiling people that we respect and admire. On that note, I want to welcome Michael Stanley-Jones. Thank you so much for making it. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I would uh, welcome Michael Stanley-Jones. That is a unique personality. And uh, Michael is difficult to define in, in a few words. And actually, a lot of words are necessary. So I'll try to just highlight some of these achievements and some of the roles that has been working. So Michael is American, based in Africa, as we speak, is right now in Czech Republic, and he serves in the United Nations Environment Program Ecosystem Integration Branch with the UNDP, UNEP, Poverty Environment Action for Sustainable Development Goals, based in Nairobi. He was an ongoing co-secretary and founder of the UN Alliance for Sustainable Fashion that is still involved as an ambassador and has been an advocate for engagement with the textile and apparel industries on the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. And from 2009 to 2014, he served as a public information officer and press liaison with the secretary of the Basel, Rotterdam and Stockholm Conventions the three leading global treaties addressing hazardous chemical and wastes. So Michael has been serving as well in the UN Economical Commission for Europe in the Secretary of the Convention to an access to information, public participation in decision-making and access to justice, environment matters. So this is just some of the things. We have as well multiple other things he's been doing, both in the United Nations, but as well in the academia where he's been having a lot of uh, papers and research. He's been as well working with the Noob Environment Forum for Negotiation, where uh, while in California, he developed the Silicon Valley California Region Watershed Management Plan and Historical Pollution Prevention Plans for Copper, Nickel and Mercury Contamination, which is in itself a lot of benchmarks and a lot of fantastic achievements. So as well, one thing that I want to highlight as well, Michael is a creative, um, he is as well, the passion, his passion includes stand-up comedy, nature and poetry, and he's been as well acting on these areas on the creative industries in Africa, especially in Nairobi, and, but a lot of other places. 
So, Michael, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. I'll try to focus on this. I think we could continue, but I, I will just scale this. So, <laughs> thank you for being here. Well, you're, you're very welcome. Yes, I, I couldn't have uh, foreseen where I would end up. Uh, it's been a long and often very strange journey. I, I thought of myself as a community organizer um, when the United Nations approached me and invited me to come to Geneva and to join the Secretariat of the Aarhus Convention uh, to launch a clearinghouse uh, kind of web platform called the Aarhus um, Clearinghouse for Environmental Democracy and to help um, implement, to bring into force a protocol to the Aarhus Convention, the Convention on Access to Information, Public Participation and Decision-Making and Access to Justice in Environmental Matters. The, the full title is 27 words long. It's easier to say Aarhus Convention. And that protocol was, was an outgrowth of uh, a negotiation that I participated in as a community organizer in California uh, for an international coalition, uh, the International Campaign for Responsible Technology. And all of that grew out of my own um, experience living in Silicon Valley, growing up in the South Bay of the San Francisco uh, region during the dot-com boom prior to that, the high-tech industries moving in the 1960s, 1970s, and transforming what had been a, a fairly sleepy place, um, an agricultural center, into the high-tech mecca that it became. And that transformation also had uh, a lot of good benefits, a lot of creativity, technology, uh, a lot of knowledge was created, and a lot of wealth was created. But it had a dark side too, and the dark side included um, polluting the groundwater of the communities that I grew up in as a child. And, and so we became interested in how the industry needed to address the environmental consequences and, and uh, work with us to, to ensure the safety and health of those resources in South San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and that, uh, what really struck me at the moment was I had known about these issues when I was a student, when I was an academic, when I taught uh, public policy, environmental public policy at universities. And I had written and published papers about these kinds of issues, hazardous waste contamination, groundwater contamination. As, a, as an academic. But then I had a family and I moved my children to schools and daycare centers, sitting exactly on top of what we in the United States call Superfund hazardous waste sites that I didn't know existed. I, I knew in general they existed other places, but I had no idea in uh, Sunnyvale, California, Santa Clara, California, Palo Alto, California, um, San Jose, California, that there were this confluence of toxic Superfund sites that permeated the landscape. Um, you can go there today. I can show you where the, the testing wells, the boreholes are for, for quarterly required tests of the contamination in the groundwater. And I, with all my knowledge and all of my, you know, supposed wisdom, had forgotten to check my own backyard and to see if the kind of problems I'm writing about and publishing about could possibly affect my children. And sure enough, my children were in, uh, very small children, living on the land that had been contaminated and that was being uh, systematically remediated, cleaned up slowly uh, over decades. Um, and that shocked me. So I became a parent, an outraged parent, who wanted to exercise my right to know my community's right to know about what kind of toxic chemicals were flowing in and out of our environment. 
um, which led me to work with uh, instruments like the United States Toxic Release Inventory, which became a model for this very protocol, uh, this, this international instrument called the Kiev Protocol on Pollutant Release and Transfer Registers to the Aarhus Convention. So it wasn't through my brilliant academic career or my, my you know, planned uh planned scheme of professional development. It was just, I was an angry parent who decided to use technology, the, the emerging technology of geographic information systems to map these toxic hotspots and then use other databases to show what kind of chemicals and what kind of chemical uh, companies had produced them. And then use the internet to actually push this information out so everybody could learn what was flowing through their neighborhoods. Uh, you know, the real emergence of GIS and internet came together uh, with a third technology called the Google search engine. Um, Google was invented during this time. And I brought these tools together and I brought them to the UN and I said, look, we, we can make this kind of information uh, available globally. You know, we now have the techniques, we now have the systems. And so that led to the adoption of the European Pollutant Release and Transfer Register. So European Union citizens now can, can look up this type of information. And uh, it, has been a, it has been a force, I think, that, you know, of all the work, it sounds so technical, but actually it's the one that touched my personal life uh, the most, as I also had family members who, who you know, died young of, of cancers mysteriously, um, not perhaps from those, those hot spots, but you know, the whole issue of, of body burden, what's in our bodies, uh, what kind of products do we use and touch, uh, what kind of food are we ingesting, you know, what, what is the chemical loading that we're giving ourselves and our children. So that, that was the parents' outrage that led me to become uh, a global activist on Right to Know and caught the attention eventually of the United Nations. They, they knew me a little bit before from some work I did on, on the Danube uh, Convention. Uh, with some community groups in Europe. But that was really separate, it was, it was a different stream. Um, I thought I was leaving the, the international stage and I was going back to Silicon Valley and I had a you know, day job. Um, I was sales and marketing uh, specialist for a technology company, an absolutely normal kind of tech worker. And then bam, um, reality woke me up and then I thought, what could I really do to, to turn this around and give other parents the chance to protect their families and their communities? Well, that's, that's very important and very inspiring, but as well, quite radical, because you, you put your life on the serving all of these different things, which is not a simple task and you went, I'm sure, for a lot of challenges. So, so before we go to a lot of the things around your career, so I would like to, to just touch what was the moment that you made that decision? And as well, how did you start? How, did, how do you look at that, that moment and how did you do it? Because I think it's very inspiring for the people listening to us. I, I was invited with my wife, um, my then wife, uh, Francis and I were invited to the Alviso Water Festival. So Alviso is a community of uh, five, 6,000 in those days, uh, living at the north end of San Jose, California, on, on the waterfront of the south, lower South San Francisco Bay. And it was an agricultural community. About 80% of the population was Hispanic um, living there and mostly working in the, in the agricultural fields uh, near Alviso. 
And the Water Festival gave us a chance to show on a laptop computer like the one I'm looking at now, um, on, a, on a geographic information system platform, um, we, my wife and I simply invited people to walk by a booth uh, run by a local um, non-governmental organization. Um, and we invited them to tell us their address, where they lived, and then we would type it into the machine and the computer would spit out a map showing where there were hazardous facilities dealing with toxic chemicals in their neighborhoods. And that, that was really the wake up call because people were, were interested. They, they wanted to know, and they had no idea. They had no idea about the technology, but they had no idea about what was really going on in their neighborhoods. You know, the, the, the thousands of, of uh, tons of chemicals that are moving in and out of their, their environment. So that, that experience uh, kind of made me decide I'm not going to stay uh, solely as, an, as a high-tech uh, salesperson. Um, I'm actually going to join a movement to be part of a solution, uh, this community right to know movement. So I, I moved over and became an advisor, a, a kind of a consultant for a few months, and then eventually a staff member of a local non-governmental organization that was advocating for this type of information. I did a project called the Environmental Justice Mapping Project with a geographer, and, and we did it for the entire Silicon Valley region. I showed that at a benefit dinner uh, gala that was attended by the mayor of the city of San Jose, and he walked up afterwards and he said, that, that map you showed in your presentation of that school, I went to that school when I was a kid. Okay, and, and so it, it really started to connect, you know, the, the, the technology, the information, the theme connected with decision makers, and, and that just kept happening again and again and again. And, you know, eventually it was the, uh, the, the Minister of Environment and International Development of Norway who had his blood taken and tested for persistent organic pollutants, toxic chemicals in his body, his body burden because he had heard about this. He heard about it not from me, but heard about it from other uh, community advocates in Europe who were uh, running detox campaigns. And, and we kept building on that interest, you know, just telling the story over and over and over again. Um, that's also how I indirectly got involved in fashion, because uh, some of those chemicals that we we're worried about in the high-tech world are also part of the technologies that are used to make apparel, to, to dye uh, fabric, in particular, uh, persistent organic pollutants that are long living, uh, that, that uh, bioaccumulate in, in organisms up the trophic levels, so they concentrate and they, became, they become ingested and embedded in our bodies for life. You cannot get rid of your toxic burden, your body burden, as we say. So, so that, you know, that community experience led me to introduce technologies that were on the horizon in the 1990s, like GIS, like uh, the beta version of Google before it was even final, the product. We, we discovered it and we, we tested it. We showed it to the World Health Organization. So, you know, the UN is sometimes considered rather slow at adopting technologies, but before Google was out of beta, um, already WHO was, was uh, seeing it applied for the fourth uh, environment and health um, conference they held in London in 1999. So really, th this, this was my journey. It wasn't planned. It wasn't uh, forecast. Um, I thought I was going to do ordinary business and be a family 
leader in my community where I already had grown up and, you know, had a lot of ties and then tap on the shoulder, please come and give a talk um, at the World Summit on Information Society held in Geneva in 2003. And I showed up and it was, it was a secret plan to recruit me into the United Nations. So I, I was, you know, seduced to do, throw everything up in, in my home state, convince, I didn't have to really convince, but, you know, we dialogued with my family on what it would mean if we moved to Europe again. We had some roots in Czech Republic prior to that. And, and, uh, and then what if I, you know, let's, let's try this. Let's, let's try to be good citizens, but do it inside the UN in, in this large organization um, with its own traditions, its own mores. Um, California Bohemians meet United Nations Geneva. Oh my gosh, that, that's a culture clash. Um, but it worked for me in that I've, I've now had 17 years with the United Nations um, and I've done, I think, some of the, some of the best work, but not, not exclusively the best work. I mean, some of the best work really was done in Silicon Valley and it was done even earlier in Central Europe with... Uh, with other groups. So inside and outside, I, I think both pathways can lead to amazing results um, if you dedicate yourself to them. No, that, that's very impressive. And I think it's, uh, I love the way you put it because I know that how difficult it is coming from a technology premium Silicon Valley world and then going to an institution as big and as uh, sometimes very complicated to manage as the United Nations. When I arrived in Geneva in January, 2004, and I was given an email account. I was told, if you send an email, go to this big red binder, this big, you know, Morocco uh, covered book, open it up and write a line in it, um, who your email is to, who it's from, the date, the time, the subject, whether it was authorized, and then initial it. They, they actually, in 2004, still thought that email was like sending a registered letter. Um, and, and that disappeared in the first year I was with the UN. You know, it's in, entirely impractical and, and really not understanding how information is flowing today. So I think, can you tell us about your work as a program office uh, responsible for communications for the poverty environment and uh, action on sustainable development goals on the UN precisely? Because that, that is one of the works you've been doing. And I would like now that you spoke about you, and I've passed that question for here. I think it's a very important thing. And as well, to demystify the work that the UN is doing, because I think now we have this kind of a sometimes linear approach that the UN is not doing as much, but the UN is doing fantastic work. Like you said, research much before Google. And now Silicon Valley, ironically, you came from Silicon Valley and took over the world. <laughs> and now you are trying to change from, from the UN, which is very inspiring as well. But I would like to hear your opinion about your work on that. Yeah, I mean, that's, the history of that goes back to something called Poverty Environment Initiative, which was uh, a, a, a marriage of two programs. The United Nations Development Program had a program on poverty and environment, and the United Nations Environment Program launched a program, a project, on the same topic, poverty and environment. And two, two program officers put their heads together and they said, well, why don't we actually join forces and we'll have a joint project in 2005, this was launched as a poverty environment initiative. And what was different about that is that United Nations Development Program, UNDP, has country offices with officers on the ground. 
in, in hundreds uh, plus countries, I mean, in most countries. And Poverty Environment uh, Initiative leveraged those country uh, resources on the ground and married them to United Nations Environment Program's global and regional presence. We don't have country presence, we don't have country offices, but we have normative, um, that is, we have uh, knowledge that can guide policy and, and we work with member states, uh, usually through our, our regional offices, our regional programs, um, to help them implement reforms and policies. So we, we put you know, brains and brawn together and married the two skill sets of our agencies and started working in uh, eventually 28 countries uh, when I joined in 2014, uh, least developed countries and some middle-income countries that really had you know, intractable problems with, with poverty that were driven by the, the poor or non-optimal management of natural resources. You know, most of the very poorest people in the world are heavily dependent on natural resources, natural capital. Fisheries, forests, um, you know, good, good farmland, uh, water. You know, they, they need natural resources to work for them because 70% uh, of their livelihood might be drawn directly from nature. And, and that base, that natural capital has been decaying and it makes it really much harder to, to address the poverty that, that is underlying um, that relationship. So we went in with the idea that we could help governments um, up their game in, in environment and natural resource management and do that with the UNDP country offices as our, as our network on the ground. And then we added one other, one other thing. Most environmental programs worked for, with ministries of environment and natural resources, which, which that seems obvious, but actual decision-making in, in government is uh, kind of centered in, in a different place. You know, ministries of finance, uh, ministries of planning, um, and the, the national executive, the, those are real centers of power. So we thought, well, let's do it differently. Let's put, let's embed in the ministry of finance, for example, our staff member that we'll pay and they will be on, on the scene advising governments and helping them pull in the, the uh, objectives of, of pro-poor, pro-environment policies that would work in tandem. We did this under the Millennium Development Goal Challenge, um, and which in two, 2015 then became the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda, the, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So we've had two 15-year windows of achievement we know we can get poverty down. We cut poverty, extreme poverty in half during the uh, Millennium Development Goal period. And we wanted to completely eliminate extreme poverty under the new 2030 agenda, which means by 2030, no poverty anywhere in any form uh, the, of, of this you know, most intractable extreme form. And, and that's really what our mission was. Um, and I like that because here we're going to integrate um, the best from development thinking and the best from the environment side of the equation um, and use the, the two, you know, broad areas of knowledge uh, to get governments to, to, to help governments make better decisions and better investments for, for eliminating poverty and protecting natural resources. That's, that's where we started with the new project in 2018 called Poverty Environment Action for Sustainable Development Goals which is a successor to Poverty Environment Initiative. And I was, I was um, the knowledge manager and communications officer for Poverty Environment Initiative. 
I thought I would, you know, graduate and move out of that. Um, but in fact, the Poverty Environment Action has faced, you know, s strong challenges, strong headwinds, particularly now with coronavirus, um, and not, not being able to actually to move people in and out of countries easily, not being able to convene the kind of sessions we had with, with stakeholders, uh, with, with public interest groups, with investors, with uh, government decision makers on the ground, extremely challenging environment right now. So in this context, we decided to create a new ecosystems integration branch, the, brand, the, the only new branch in all of UNEP, which pulls together the three major programs that have this kind of synthesis ethic, you know, integrative ethic, pull together knowledge from different areas to make environment work for people and, and make um, natural resources, uh, nature, uh, a centerpiece of development strategy. And so Poverty Environment Action is one of those, um, but I also work with two other major programs, the Regional Seas Program, which, which covers the oceans uh, and blue economy, um, the, the benefits the oceans give to communities, to, to livelihood, um, and also with the International Ecosystems Management Partnership based in Beijing, which is a UNEP or a partnership with the Chinese Academy of Sciences as China has a, a strong record of eliminating extreme poverty, they've, they've been growing um, well for, for several decades now, and, and poverty has been shrinking. Um, so we wanted to make sure we, we harvest those lessons and help other countries that are, that are struggling with that uh, to also grow themselves out of poverty, but at the same time make resources more sustainable. Um, and all of that in the context of the 2030 Agenda. So now I work for the branch. I don't work just for one project. And I'm trying to integrate things across the house so that we leave no one behind as this 2030 agenda unfolds. On that context of the 2030, and I think it would be good if you could just highlight uh, for people that never heard about it, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that never heard about it if you are outside of the United Nations Sustainable Goals. Um, could you tell us about that? I like, first of all, the program, and I think because it's been, like you said, there was a massive benchmark. If you look at uh, 1980, or 19, uh, uh, well, 1820, sorry, there was around 94% of poverty in the planet. Um, now we are in, two, in 2020, and we have around 10, 11%. I think these are the numbers official. Mm. And I know that this was partly because of this work done by people like you around the world, and really a massive work that I think very few people give the credit. Um, so I would like, and I know that the 2030 is part of that program, and it's been, of course, a much yeah. ambitious yeah. program. So if you could give a bit of a, I like that, and now you've been working on that. You'll find nothing but you know affection, admiration for me for the 2030 agenda. Um, it was adopted in 2015 as a successor to the 15-year Millennium Development Goals. Um, and it was agreed by consensus by all member states of the United Nations. Now, you know, think how fractious um, relations are sometimes between countries. And then compare that with all 193 countries of the UN system uh, reaching agreement on 17 sustainable development goals. Uh, which are the, the, the structure of this 2030 agenda, pledging in 15 years to, to try to hit those marks. 
Um, they also agreed 169 targets for measuring the achievement of those goals. So it's, it's kind of complex when you look at it, you know, in, in that detailed light. But, the, you know, the takeaway is the, the entire globe agreed this is the blueprint. This is where we need to head. And to do that, the United Nations led a process that was unique in world history. We used ICT, we used communications technologies to reach out and engage with 3 million voices, 3 million you know, voices, people um, participated in, in hundreds of events to express what they wanted as the future of the planet. Uh, what, what they, how, how to define these, what became 17 goals. Um, and all of those voices had to be aggregated and, and respected in a process that led to something that all member states could agree on, um, which they did again in, in 2015. So, you, you know, there, there is nothing, there's no other document in the history of the world that has this kind of force behind it and that was created through such a participatory process. So you, you remember I mentioned I worked for this um, Aarhus Convention, which is public participation is at the heart of that. So I think of the, the process leading up to the adoption of the 2030 Agenda as one of the best examples of participatory democracy in the history of, of this planet. Now, are we achieving those goals? Um, not, not nearly uh, as much as we had hoped. I mean, we are, we are behind schedule um, with uh, this year's, uh, I would say, declining uh, economic prospects. Um, it's, it's, it's been all that much harder to make progress. So we and the Secretary General Guterres of the United Nations have repeatedly said we need to now you know, redouble our efforts. So what are these goals? Well, I, I mentioned goal one, which is to eliminate poverty. Um, but other goals like goal five uh, on gender equality um, or, or goal 17 on innovative partnerships, I mean, different names for, for these goals, but they really link together. And that's, that's kind of my special field is working on issues where they, they cut across the agenda. One of them that I've worked on is equity you know, and, and gender rights. How, how do you uh, mainstream considerations for the poor and, and for the equitable access to natural resources throughout goals that may be subject specific, you know, uh, goal 14 on uh, life underwater, um, or, you know, goals addressing climate change or air or land and so on. Those are all kind of specific, but permeating all of them should be this kind of constant concern for fairness, for equity, um, for, for gender equality. Um, and so those cross-cutting issues are the ones that um, sometimes are forgotten uh, in the first instance because organizations, even UN organizations, often organize themselves in, in silos. You know, your, your unit works on this issue, your unit works on this issue. And, and the core of those issues are defined maybe in ways that are not so friendly for the, the horizontal connectivity between them. Um, but we know, for example, in agriculture, from work we did in Poverty Environment uh, Initiative, um, partnered with UN Women and the World Bank, we did some studies on agricultural productivity, and we just found that in sub-Saharan Africa, one of the biggest hindrances to upping 
uh, productivity in, in agriculture was uh, barriers that, that women face when they engage in agriculture and commerce. They, they don't have access to markets, they don't have access to technology, they don't have the same access um, to, to finance and so on. A lot of structural problems that were preventing women from in women-led farms in the countries we studied from, from really reaching their potential. And we know we need to grow agriculture. We know we have a growing population. Um, we, have to, we have to feed more people and we have to do it more efficiently and eco-efficiently so we can continue to do it for the next generation and generations thereafter. So that, that kind of work is the, really the product of the 2030 agenda to get people to see the environment and, and uh, economy um, and equity in, in a holistic way and to connect those dots. Um, that's why I'm, I'm so passionate about that agenda because there's, there's no other instrument in the, in the planet that has that scope and that holistic quality as the 2030 agenda. To be honest, I think we should be very grateful. I think everyone in the planet, I know that at the moment we are in a moment that uh, there's so much criticism for everything, but we have this fantastic achievement and that is part that work. And I think everyone should be, I want to think I've been more and more approaching. That's why I started as well this, this podcast and, and different platforms is that we need to look at the facts. And of course, there's always challenge, but the facts are facts. And you are a scientific person, so I know all that. So I just want to put a note, personal note on that because I think it's, we need to repeat it, especially with the, if you see the news around us and all the fake uh, things on that. So as part of the UNEP Sustainability Workgroup, you support the developing of a lot of these programs. Um, so I think just to understand, especially in the frameworks that you've been working, policies, you mentioned that before, how do you achieve this? And I think you mentioned the work with governments, and I know that is not a sense, is a very sensitive part, uh, part of your work, but I know as well that it's probably one of the things we need to highlight more and as well uh, understand in order to demystify and probably get better results. I've, I've been using uh, my, my creative community's um, persuasive powers. So you, you mentioned that I also like uh, comedy and, and uh, performing arts. Um, we've actually brought some of those skills into the communication toolkit of the United Nations. Um, now decision makers don't really have time to read through tombs of thick, uh, 100-page reports. They need, they need information that is uh, grasped ra rapidly, that they can, they can uh, incorporate in their thinking, and they need it to be communicated in persuasive ways. So um, obvious tools, we've seen a switch from, from uh, written reports to, to videography. Um, we've moved from having uh, side events at official UN summits, which used to consist of a panel of seven or eight experts or, or government leaders, uh, so-called talking heads, who would each give a set speech, maybe with a PowerPoint behind them, and then there would be question, answer, and then perhaps for five minutes, interaction with the audience. You know, this, this format was repeated uh, for decades, um, ever since PowerPoint was present, was invented, I suppose. But it, it is stale and it is, it is not compelling for most people today. So instead we started organizing events that would integrate um, 
uh, visual displays, um, uh, let's say photography, um, art, um, and even fashion. So at the fourth United Nations Environment Assembly, when we launched the United Nations Alliance for Sustainable Fashion, which is just an interagency coordinating body. So it could be, you know, rather ho-hum uh, if you read it on paper. But during that launch, we interrupted the presentations by having fashion pop-ups where sustainable designs made by some of the most creative artists uh, that we could find um, were, were displayed. We didn't play music because we were still feeling rather solemn about the, the Ethiopian air disaster that happened on the eve of the fourth United Nations Environment Assembly. So we didn't have catwalks and flashing lights or anything like that. But, but we actually showed the material of sustainability. We showed ideas of design and we backed that with a sustainable innovations expo where we invited 50 businesses and entrepreneurs to come and have booths and display their their innovations some of which like blockchain are you know more intellectual um, but others like take turning water hyacinth um, a, a, a water pollutant in Africa into a fabric that could be durable and beautiful um, were also inspiring um, and those those kinds of events where you you mix media um, you mix uh, the creative force behind them uh, with and, and mingle that into the dialogue with government decision makers, you know, not just prevent, presenting them with information, but giving them, you know, the, the, the textuality of, of communication today. And young people in particular, um, they're using the Internet in ways that we didn't imagine back in 1980s and 90s when we were inventing these tools. Um, their, their creativity is beyond our imagination, and that evolution will continue. So to answer the question shortly, governments need to be exposed to the new ways that people communicate. Um, art is fantastic because it transcends borders. You don't need an interpreter or a translator for an image to, to impact someone in a community, uh, even if they don't speak the same language as the community that produced it. So it's, it's, uh, it's a new way of communicating that I think we need. It means practically we're also using big data a lot more. We're doing a lot of more mapping. We're doing a lot more of infographics as a, as a communications tool. Um, you know, for, for the third United Nations Environment Assembly, I created two long roll-ups and just uh, moved them around the halls so people could read the story, see the pictures, and understand, you know, what does it really mean to address poverty, environment, and equity? Um, in, in one package with uh, waste picking community in Peru or with uh, women vendors in Rwanda. Um, these, are, these are stories and storytelling that can motivate us far beyond what the, the, the dry data sometimes tells us. Now that, that's amazing and I'm completely subscribed to that and I think we need that more and more. So, so I think on that level, I would like to ask about, of course, one of the biggest things you've been involved in is UN Alliance for Sustainable Fashion. So how did you get engaged? How did you been creating this? Because it's been having a massive effect worldwide. And I know that even from a branding end, you're talking about art and creativity, but it's actually touching a lot of things. And as well as creating a conscious level for the fashion industry, but as well for the community. Because I think after the UN Sustainable Fashion um, Initiative, 
it, it created much more awareness for all the industry. And of course, COVID is right now highlighting all of this. But I would like to hear how did you start your engagement? What are the goals right now? I have to give credit to three uh, women-led community-based organizations in Kenya because they came to me um, and they, they said, uh, how can we be involved in the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development? And I, I mentioned that we had an upcoming assembly of the United Nations Environment uh, Community, the, the UNIA II, and uh, they conceived of having a fashion event uh, at UNIA II. So I didn't come with the idea of fashion. They, they, they working in rural Kenyan communities with, with women, with agriculture, um, with development issues that they, they were addressing, things like uh, HIV, AIDS. Um, they wanted to bring their stories and share them with the community brought together by UNIA too, this, this assembly. And so we decided we would have a, a dinner discussion that would be punctuated with fashion show and then supported by artisans from the informal settlements around Nairobi, um, where, where they could you know, actually vend their crafts. Uh, we didn't do it at the UN, it's a little bit restricted there, but we did it uh, in Westlands outside of the UN and you know, we announced it during the meeting on the, on the eve of the opening of the meeting on a Saturday evening and 100 people got in taxis and, and, and uh, cars, so unfortunately, bus system isn't the easiest to navigate in Nairobi. And they, and they came to this dinner, which was an outdoor garden dinner. Uh, and each of these women leaders from their communities told their story. And I, you know, I, I emceed the event. I, I, I helped produce it um, and introduce them, but I had no hand in scripting anything. Their stories were so authentic and so compelling. People had tears in their eyes. And, and, you know, rushed afterwards to, to see how they could be engaged and support their, their what they're called CBOs, community-based organizations. Um, we also had Jacqueline McGlade, who is UNEP's chief scientist, um, who also is an advocate for sustainability in, in the Maasai community. She's, she's a Maasai. Um, um, I think she was a princess at that time. She was married to a Maasai prince. And, and she came in her Maasai uh, costume and, and talked about the development she's worked on to bring, to bring you know, sustainability really down to the community level. That event so impressed people that it led to this dialogue. Um, and when other UN agencies asked UNEP, would you like to join us in creating what became the Alliance for Sustainable Fashion? Um, I was asked if I could you know, speak on behalf of UNEP. People remembering my engagement with, with a fashion benefit dinner. And it was as, as simple as that. Of course, I had long been watching this community develop and, and thinking about how fashion and sustainability could support the 2030 agenda. But I didn't initially come with the ideas, uh, you know, fashion, bad, toxic, uh, wasteful. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see the dimensions challenge that the, the apparel and textile sector face at that time. At that time, I thought, you know, fashion is popular and it's ubiquitous. Everybody loves to dress. Everybody has their style. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you are on the planet, whether it's, you know, a rural community or a mountain community, um, you have traditions, folk traditions, you have local style, and, and you have youth uh, mobilized and engaged around this topic. So I thought, wow, fashion, this could be a way of drawing people in 
and introducing them to the 2030 agenda. So that, that was initially my, you know, hopeful sign. Um, talking to my colleagues, my environmentalist um, friends, I was really shocked to find out the animosity that was held against this industry because of its dismal performance against, you know, any measure of sustainability. Even the industry's own metrics uh, give it extremely low scores. Uh, you know, zero to 100, they're scoring less than 50. Um, um, almost all uh, of the major companies and brands are, are doing, you know, less than they need to do to be able to claim they're, they're sustainable. So 10 UN agencies uh, met in New York and agreed to create this alliance in July 2018. They invited me to be the uh, organizer of it, the, the secretary, inaugural secretary. Um, we convened a meeting in Belgrade in December. Uh, the executive director of UNEP issued an invitation to all UN agencies and, and specialized agencies. So everything from Global Compact to the World Bank to uh, UNCTA, the Trade and Development Commission, International Labor Organization, uh, UNEP, United Nations Development Program. I, I could go on this. It's a long list. And some friends like uh, Food and Agriculture Organization that also is working in the field on, on sustainable fashion from um, from agricultural products. So there, there was, you know, such interest. And we pulled, pulled this together. Um, we adopted a, our first work plan on the eve of the formal launch in March of 2019. And there, the, the Alliance's real objectives come to the fore. We're not just about publicizing the issue. Our audience, first and foremost, are member states themselves, because government has been a bit late coming to uh, this agenda. They, they, haven't, you know, they haven't been the strongest voices in leading the sustainable fashion movement. That's probably more coming from industry itself and the advocacy community that's you know, driving uh, concerns of consumers uh, about the unsustainability and the poor performance. So companies are leading, um, environmental organizations are leading, Research and development is, is advancing, technology is advancing, and governments need now to step up um, and, and express their own leadership to, to bring this movement to uh, fruition, to make its impact really more, more powerful. So we are um, collaborating across the UN system so we can pull our strengths together and, and present to our members, our member states, to the diplomatic community, uh, the best products that we've found. An example I mentioned earlier was the Sustainable Innovation Expo, where we had 50 uh, entrepreneurs uh, showcasing these innovations. Also dialogue on circularity and textiles. And we've done that not just for the environmental community. We've done it in New York with the General Assembly. We've done it with the International Trade Center on their International Trade Center's public forum last year, where circularity and textiles was on the agenda. Again, is the, the main theme. And we'll continue to do it with UNCTAD next year, uh, Creative Cities, Cities Network, UNESCO. Um, we just keep banging away so that, so that governments will learn where the issue stands. But beyond that, we are systematically mapping the value chain and looking at strategic points where we can tip processes. Um, I'll give an example. The, there's a great concern now about fashion waste with fast fashion, producing clothes that are worn on average seven times and then tossed in the bin um, with 80% of fashion being incinerated 
unsold uh, clothing being incinerated and only 20, 20% landfilled, um, end of life. I mean, it is, it is really a t- ticking time bomb. And, and that's unacceptable. It's a, it's a waste of natural resources, a waste of natural capital. Um, it's, it's a business model that cannot uh, enable us to achieve the 2030 agenda. Just on one metric alone, the carbon footprint, the greenhouse gas emissions associated with, with fashion and apparel, uh, footwear and leather goods, I mean, we're talking upwards of 10% of global emissions. Um, just, you know, footwear, you know, tennis shoes alone, um, 1.4% 1, 1. of the global carbon footprint. Um, those figures are skyrocketing. They're, they're, until COVID, those were, well, those were growing much faster um, such that Ellen MacArthur Foundation predicted they'd become one quarter of the global footprint um, by 2030. That is, that's wholly unacceptable in a world that's supposed to be headed towards carbon neutrality to stop the climate emergency and to keep global temperatures under one and a half degrees Celsius average increase by 2050. You have to make enormous progress to cut your carbon now. And if fashion doesn't know how to do that, then we have a responsibility to help uh, fashion find a way. And so we have been promoting tools like the Science-Based Carbon Initiative, which supports the Paris Agreement, which is the, the agreement to cut global carbon emissions by 2050. Um, and these tools help companies audit their value chain, figure out where they can make uh, you know, the greatest reductions the, the most quick, quickly and efficiently. Um, we know we can cut global carbon budget by half by 2030 with tools that we already have, but companies need access to them. They need to know, and governments need to know that these companies need to know and can make these changes successfully if they get that access. So, you know, very practical steps. Uh, mention one last one, and that's, um, we, we have a project with the International Trade Center called RESET. And that project is to look at all those t- norms and standards and tools that are existing out there, and then package them in a way that a CEO can apply them at, at company level, at brand level, and make those changes rapidly. We don't have a lot of time. 2030 is right around the corner. But we have to do it if we're going to achieve what we've set out to do. Yeah, and I, and I think it's a massive uh, requirement. And I think one question, just to wrap up with this, um, bearing all your experience in Silicon Valley, initially what made you look at this, and as well now with the fashion industry that uh, you went deep, and as well all the work in the United Nations, what would be like the top problems that we need to solve? Because when, it talk, when you talk about climate change, there's so much counter-information right now that it becomes a complete nightmare from people um, right now attacking the 5G and all this kind of thing. So there's a lot of craziness around this. So from a scientific background and as well leading one of the biggest organizations in the world in this area, or the biggest, how do you look at the major problems that we can tackle right now, and especially the things we can, you mentioned fashion, in general, in terms of sustainability? I would start with our habits of consumption and production, uh, which of course fashion is, you know, deeply embedded in our economies. Um, fashion produces around two and a half trillion dollars of value each year. Um, so it is, it is a major par- portion of our economy. And in Africa, 
the creative economy is, is forecast to grow to be the second most important economic activity after agriculture for Africa's economies. Um, so that, that gives you a sense that, you know, we're not, we're not talking about just uh, uh, things, that, things that are not central to our livelihoods and our sustainable uh, agenda. These are absolutely core products that are flowing in and out of our lives um, that we have to get our arms around if we're going to be successful. And they are huge economic drivers of, of economies in, in the developing world and in the developed world. So how, uh, what, what kinds of measures can we take? Um, we will issue very shortly a new report on circularity in textiles, uh, circularity and sustainability of the textile value chain. Uh, textiles being, of course, what feeds our, our clothing industries. And circularity means, among other things, closing the loop. So the, thing, the products, the, the, the commodities we take and use to make the products um, at their end of life or near end of life should not be thrown into the ecosphere, but should be recovered and, and repurposed, reused, recycled, uh, reconfigured, redesigned. Um, we need to value the, the material world in a different way. And consumers have a role in that, um, but so do producers, because producers can choose materials that lend themselves to circularity. So I'll give an, I'll give an example, and I don't want to just, um, you know, be up on one sector, um, but about two-thirds of fabric in the world today is made of um, polyester. And polyester is, is a you know, derivative of, of uh, petroleum. It, it is plastic, if you will. And plastic pollution is, a, is an enormous problem of our oceans, problem of our seafood, problem of the, the air column, as microfibers from plastic, uh, largely from clothing, I think, are, are floating in the airshed and we are inhaling them. Um, plastic itself may not be super toxic, but it often attaches toxins to it, like pesticides or, or um, persistent organic pollutants, uh, oil droplets, and so on. The, the plastic acts at the microscopic level like a sponge. Okay, so, well, maybe we need to reconsider what we use to weave fabric. Maybe, maybe um, polyesters might not be the optimal you know, material because it turns into a pollutant too rapidly and we have not figured out how to capture and control it yet, which is why we have um, a process looking at marine litter and microplastic pollution right now, which is a global issue, because all of our seas are now uh, littered and, and polluted by plastic. So what could we do better? We could, we could look at materials to see if they are eco-sensitive, if they are sustainable, if they biodegrade in the ecosphere when they're released to the environment and become harmless or whether they, like plastics, might live for 200 years before they decay and break up. Um, and even when they break up, you know, what's their fate in transport? Are they like microfibers floating through the airshed? Um, are each of us inhaling more than 80,000 microfibers, those micron-sized um, filaments of plastic uh, into our lungs? Is, is that what the future we want for the planet? Because that future is already here. Um, we just don't know what it means. But we do know that we can also lower our carbon footprint. If we extend the life of our clothes, if we, if we pick more durable fabrics, 
if we don't, you know, wear something once or twice and then throw it in the waste bin, uh, where it can become incinerated and, and turn into a dioxin, another uh, persistent organic pollutant that floats through the airshed and, and is uh, landing on our ecosystems and, and contaminating, um, for example, uh, marine animals, marine life, um, with very high levels of, of POPs, persistent organic pollutants found in, in sea lions, for example. Um, you know, there's, there's a conscionable way we can consume where we look at the life cycle of these products and we choose those that are more ecologically sensitive, better for our health, better for the planet's health, and use less um, petroleum, you know, that are, that, that are free of our addiction to, to oil and gas, which is, is not helping the climate emergency cut its, its carbon loading. So those, those are just a few ideas, circularity, recycling, um, designing for the environment and, and other steps we can make, both as producers and consumers, that would change the equation and, and head us in the right direction. Oh, amazing. And a lot of the notes, we are taking notes here because there's a lot of good things that I think it should, we should uh, speak loud about that. Um, so I want to touch one thing that relates with that. And there's a, a, a work that you wrote um, that is Reward or Renewal, the Poverty Environment Initiative Final Project Report that you are a co-author with uh, G. Gupta. And, uh, and different things. And you have as well remanaging the driver pressure state impact response framework from an equity and inclusive development perspective. Do you want to talk about this? I think this particular interest, there yeah. are two different things, but are very important. Reward and renewal is a, is a product summing up five years of our work. Uh, the United Nations Development Program and the United Nations Environment Program. Um, and the important part of that report is not just the, you know, the report to our, our, our constituents on the success, um, on, on the uh, achievements of those projects, those 28 country projects, but, but also um, the lessons that we learned from them, um, you know, rules of the road and ways governments can do things better which we're now, again, applying in the next project, Poverty Environment Action. But they're not just for us. They're, they're really for any agency, um, any bilateral donor, um, any, any development group uh, can read that report and, and digest, uh, look, look at those lessons. We have, we have, a, uh, yeah, we, we have a couple, three, four publications that have tried to summarize at different levels the lessons learned. There's one for Africa, there's one for Latin America and Caribbean. Uh, where we had worked uh, with Poverty Environment Initiative. There's another one for Central Asia. Um, and then there's two global reports, Reward and Renewal being one of the two, the final project report. Um, the, other, the other paper on equity, um, which is an examination of the, the, the way that we have evaluated uh, global environmental problems, a methodology that was applied by the Global Environment Outlook. That's that's a, a report, but it's also a process by which the United Nations Environment Program engages with governments around the world and, and really maps out the key environmental uh, issues and challenges that we face, and then also looks at solutions. So that process uh, resulted in the publication in 2019 of the Global Environment Outlook 6 report, 
Uh, Professor Gupta was the, was the co-chair of that process, which involved over 200 uh, experts nominated by governments, by member states, and that was supported by my secretariat. Um, I was asked to be an advisor on the cross-cutting issue of equity, and we eventually worked very closely with the gender uh, work group, which was uh, our author's team, uh, that looked at gender as a cross-cutting issue. So the two, the two uh, went hand in hand. And, and we went through that exercise for two years, um, dialoguing with the other experts um, and with authors who, who were tasked by that process to draft the, the first conclusions and, and uh, the evidence. Um, and, and that led to this, this you know, massive, massive study, which is um, available. It's online at unenvironment.org, uh, geo6. Um, but also there's a lot of spin-off uh, off products of that, you know, a geo for youth, the geo for business, and so on, um, that kind of made, made it more accessible because it is a scientific uh, a tomb. And, and parallel to that, um, a, a group of us drafted a, a paper, if you will, um, published uh, in, in a reputable peer-reviewed journal, um, which addressed the equity dimension, basically making the argument that um, many environmental issues, when you do not look at the distributional impacts across populations, how they affect the poor and the marginal in different ways than they affect you know, the average um, community, um, you, you, you can miss uh, a, an important parameter, which is essentially an argument being made you know, for since at least 1990 by the environmental justice community um, in South Africa, in the United States and in Europe, but in other places as well, in Indonesia, you know, you, you really need to look if your policies are, are treating the, the most disadvantaged fairly. Now, that at one time may have seemed a bit radical because uh, classical economists thought, development economists thought, you know, the way to help people is just to grow economies and uh, they were measuring things at the aggregate level as you know what's the country's gross domestic product is it going up is it going up by so much um, and they didn't really look carefully to see does increasing prosperity for example in the capital or in the urban center does it translate into increasing pro prosperity for women in rural communities for example and the answer often is it doesn't you know we we can see increasing wealth, but going hand in hand with increasing inequality. Now it's a commonplace. Inequality is a drag on development. Inequality is not only just inherently unfair, but actually slows down a country's uh, move to, to uh, exit the poverty trap. You know? so, so now we're a bit more mature, I think. And we, we reflected this in the GEO6 with a cross-cutting issue of equity, I forget uh, equity now appears something like 65 times in at least the draft report. Um, and, and what we tried to do in our research was really to document how across a number of examples, this equity issue um, changes the, the way we would look at the pressure state uh, response model that had been uh, a framework for doing this kind of analysis. This is, a, this is a mandate of the United Nations Environment Program given to us by the General Assembly. Uh, we are the stewards of, you know, the scientific evidence-based 
uh, work on the state of the environment globally. And it is as close as we have to a global state of the environment report, the global uh, environment outlook. Amazing. And I think this is kind of, a, I think it's one of the major uh, issues, the idea how can we improve these areas of reward and renewal and all the different areas that have been touching because it, uh, we have a, a very schizophrenic world with a lot of different divisions. But well, let's continue on the package and I'm trying to wrap up. I know that's probably a bit tired, but I think I wanted to steal three questions more. Oh, I, ne I never get tired. You, you should know that about me by now. Oh, that's wonderful. I may become boring, <laughs> but I, I really... I'm no, 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 not boring at all. <laughs> no, this is amazing. I think it, we should... Uh... I get paid by the word, you know, so the more I speak... <laughs> the better. Yeah. <laughs> no, your words are very precious. Um, so I want to ask, uh, probably on the personal level, but as well on the professional, how did you end up in Nairobi? And I mentioned, you mentioned that you start the UN Sustainable Goals based there, but as well, you've been very active uh, in Kenya in Africa, but you've been living there. So yeah. uh, I know that Africa is going to be the future continent is most of the people are 20 years old. So you've been there on the epicenter of a lot of things and as well a very dynamic culture, but very complex as well. So a bit of that base, how did you end up there and all the things related? I'm going to get in trouble with my friends in Geneva because there I was, you know, based uh, since 2004 um, until 2014. I had my, my, my 10th year there. And, um, you know, Geneva is, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty nice place in many regards. But I felt that as a UN, you know, officer, as a UN person, I needed a rounder experience. I needed to, to not be in... Um, in, in a, you know, highly developed um, commercial environment, but I needed to be in a more pluralistic, um, more diverse and more challenging environment. And most UN officers at one point or another in their careers, they go into the field. Um, Nairobi is still a headquarters. It's the headquarters of UN Habitat and UN Environment Program. And it's a very cosmopolitan and, and vibrant city, um, not, not perhaps the, the typical city in Africa, um, but, you know, hugely interesting one. I had visited it. Um, I had been approached and asked if I wanted to work there. Um, but at the same time, um, my wife was a zoographer. She was documenting the lives of animals in zoos and also the trade in, in uh, export of wild animals from Africa to Europe, which is a very kind of critical history, um, critical in the sense that it's not always a uh, uh, a happy story. It's often a very tragic story. For every every uh, gorilla, you know, chimp uh, taken from the African wilds, uh, perhaps ten other chimps have died um, in 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 that trade and trafficking. And she was supporting a project uh, at Prague Zoological Garden to raise funds for eco guards um, in Senegal, I believe. There may be Cameroon, but not my detail, not my, my expertise. But the point was she had long wanted to move to Africa and be in direct contact uh, with the issues that she cared about, uh, that we all should care about, of wildlife conservation. And so we both had this kind of, you know, opportunity to come. Uh, we, we came to Nairobi. Uh, she very quickly joined a leading uh, non-governmental organization that works on interdiction of wildlife trafficking. Of, of the smuggling and, and uh, of the syndicates that, 
that organize the movement of animals and, and uh, animal parts, uh, including rhino horn and pangolin skin, and sometimes, shockingly, uh, also body parts of humans that these, these criminal organizations trade in uh, from, from Africa. So they have an eight country network and they've uh, worked closely with customs and with police and with the you know, Ministry of Environment and with Interpol to help trap, uh, to help capture um, and, and, and document the evidence of these crimes uh, and put away these, put, put down these syndicates. So she has you know, her, her own uh, agenda, hugely important one and I support it. And, and we have been now six years uh, working on, on, I work on poverty and the environment. She works on wildlife conservation uh, using this, these different tools and, and networks. Um, beyond that, I, I just fell in love with, with Kenya and with uh, East Africa. Um, uh, Nairobi is, is an exciting place. Uh, nature is not the only attractive thing about uh, Africa. Um, I think we have a bit of a romanticized view. Um, this is a very urban place that we live. Um, it has a dynamic culture. Uh, it has some of the friendliest people. Um, sorry, Switzerland, but you know, the, the charm offensive goes to Kenya because these, these are some of the warmest uh, human beings you'll find on the planet. And I come from you know, Northern California. We're not known for being too grumpy. Um, we're, we're not from Minnesota, for example. Sorry, Minnesota. But Northern California is, a, is sometimes considered a fairly laid-back place. I think that's probably uh, only partly true. Uh, today, with the fires, it's a very tense and, and a tragic place as well. But, you know, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not known for being cold. Uh, wow, we are beaten hands down by East Africa. Uh, warm, friendly, and, and creative people. It's, it's been great also, having come from Silicon Valley, to see that now uh, Kenya is making huge advances in, in applying um, ICT, in applying the high-tech tools, and telephony in particular, and e-finance, um, other ways. You know, this is, this is a place to watch because it's going to transform probably how I do my banking um, in the very near future. I think as the last uh, probably two questions, but I probably will get a third one, but I want to talk about, so we are in very special times with very comprehensive and very difficult times as well. So in one end, we have COVID-19. In one end, we have the acceleration of digital transformation that a lot of things that will take probably decades will be done faster because people have to do it. And a lot of governments are accelerating that. And you touch digital transformation in what you say, but we have as well a very strong perception of the reality with a lot of uh, cynicism, fake news, and a lot of different things. So I know that the United Nations has been working on the sustainable development goals. You mentioned the 2030 agency. Um, and I think that, that work is more important than ever, especially with the concept of society 5.0 that initially was created by the Japanese government. And I know that the United Nations has been working on that as well. You mentioned the circular economy. So in terms of messaging of hope, and you, I think all your discourse is about that, but I would like to highlight, especially for the young generation and as well for the individuals and organizations that are going for a lot of uh, serious moments, especially right now, I, what would be your message? Um, I know that you are a very person of hope and initiative as well. I think I'm going back to my roots and, and uh, the way we, where we started. And, and that is at the United Nations Environment Program, 
uh, we are developing a new uh, sub-program. We organize our work um, in many of our divisions according to these sub-programs like environmental governance, which is led by our law division, or ecosystems uh, health, which is led by our ecosystems division. But the newest one uh, of this cluster is digital transformation. Um, so that's, that's the future. Um, that includes cooperating with our science division on big data, on, on earth observation, um, and on finding new ways of, of capturing and communicating uh, the, the environmental situation and, and the solutions that are out there for it. So digital is, is coming again uh, on strongly within the UN system. So how does that, how does that provide opportunities for, for uh, youth and for people entering the workforce, entering the marketplace? Under COVID, we saw that uh, digital commerce um, is, is in strong demand. Um, fashion companies that had no online presence have really suffered, and, and some of them have even gone uh, out of business. Um, others who already had developed digital services, uh, e-commerce services, and it's not just about shopping online. I have to say this is not, you know, uh, Amazon uh, 3.0 is something like that. This, this is also about procurement. It's also about design and production upon demand. It's also about 3D printing and other techniques that are coming online that will marry internet uh, tools with how we produce and consume our products. So pairing that to um, the old model of big box retail um, is probably the future. Um, we, will, we will see a pluralization of the sources of products. So value chains are pluralizing. They'll be shorter, um, you know, from the market to the factory to the, to the consumer household. That will be a shorter line than the global value chain that we've grown up around during the last quarter century or more. Um, and there will be more opportunities at different points to apply these digital uh, reforms. Um, so quickly, cooking, com coming up to speed on things like blockchain, on, on digital design, uh, coming up to speed on how to market effectively and communicate over, over the internet. Um, digitalization, you know, full cart, that's, that's probably the future. Um, and that will radically change the, the labor force. Um, because, for example, we won't overproduce as we have been and then have to warehouse and then eventually toss away and incinerate uh, excess stock, clothes that were never wanted, uh, that were never successfully marketed and sold, um, you know, pure wastage. We're going to squeeze all of that inefficiency out of the market, and the digital is, is one of the main tools we have for, for doing that. Um, I also think a more broadly creative economy it's not just about uh, the, the application of these uh, ICT reforms. It's, it's also about bringing creativity um, back up where it, where it kind of gets the full respect and the weight that it has in our national economies, in our labor forces. So performing arts, uh, probably much greater role in our future. Storytelling, much greater role. Um, you know, when I was an undergraduate, you know, my father was very worried if I took a class in folklore or poetry. 
uh, you know, alarmed. Why aren't you studying engineering? Well, you know, look at today. Those who know how to communicate, those who can tell stories, those who can write music, those who can produce graphic arts, those who can digitize those skill sets and marry them to ICT, you know, those are the superstars. Those are our new sports heroes today. It's, it's really a changed landscape. Um, I'm really pleased my children decided to study art um, and for one of them, ancient history, because somehow ancient history is going to come back and bite us again uh, and will come back into vogue when it's, when it's married to the new technologies and, and new skills that will be demanded for, by the marketplace of the 21st century. So I, I advise um, individuals, I mentor quite a few of them, in, particularly in the spoken word community in Nairobi, in the performing arts, but, but also governments and government decision makers. You know, let's invest in this. Let's, let's figure out how we can create opportunities and new markets. Um, and they are coming. I'll, I'll just mention one that, you know, maybe hasn't gotten the attention it needs, but there's a huge boom in, in online gaming. But who knew that online gaming has spawned a boom in digital fashion where consumers are going online and they're buying costumes, you know, bespoke made clothing for their characters and dressing them up and then having them move through the virtual world, uh, doing their adventures uh, really well-dressed. Now, that may seem exotic and bizarre to those of us who are you know, my age, look at this beard, but honestly, to, to a consumer who's 30 and under, um, that's, that's the future. I saw some statistics where the average shopper for vir virtual digital fashion was spending annually $58 a year, and that's expected to explode, you know, to, to become a $150 million market in the next year. So, you know, there are opportunities if you use your imagination. Um, I might not have thought of that, but certainly uh, creative people are thinking of it and they're designing for the future right now. Yeah, it's a multi-billion dollars industry. All the virtual goods and virtual design and things like that. So on that note, I want to ask you one question because you have, uh, well, first of all, you have uh, a big, like you mentioned, sensitivity for the arts. And although coming from an engineer and technology background, you're writing poetry and you're doing uh, stand-up performance and using that as well part of your work and communications. And if you look at Nelson Mandela, he managed to unite South Africa, partly because of the sports and the music as well. So they were, it worked in a country very divided, especially after apartheid. So one, one of the questions is, I would like to touch a bit of this creative industry's work that you've been doing, because I think it's very important. I think, like you said, there's a bit of a, not a bit, there's a huge divorce between, I always, uh, I had the, as well a background of arts and literature, so in my case it's natural, but I came to technology and I kind of, when I speak in the technology people, about art and poetry, I have to be very careful. Not everyone understands. So speaking with you, I feel at home. But one of the things I find is really that we have the architects and the engineers. And this is creating a massive, and then of course you have then the, the storytellers and you have good storytellers and bad storytellers. But the engineers are taking over the world, especially Silicon Valley, which where you start your career. And they control a huge part of the world. And right now, China is taking the other part of the world. <laughs> and actually, uh, Eric Schmidt recently mentioned in a, in a panel um, that uh, China is right now a decade ahead of the rest of the world in terms of technology. And like you mentioned, just 10 years ago, they were under massive poverty. 
So one of the things I would like to touch is the geopolitics of these things. And you touch digital transformation. A digital transformation comes with data. Uh, and data is the biggest asset of our times, and especially the way we deal with data. But there's a lack of understanding about this, especially by governments, which is kind of alarming. But at the same time, you mentioned blockchain, AI, which are the biggest technologies. And they are going to be, and I'm, I'm working in blockchain and AI, I'm building this technology myself. And I feel that what I can do scares me. And I have kind of good principles, at least I think I have, and I work for that, but not everyone has. So how do you cope with that, especially the UN? I think the UN has been working a lot in terms of, the, yeah. in terms of uh, mostly the circular economy and the, 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 the agenda of uh, 2030, but on the data ownership and the data ethics, I would like to touch that because it's critical, even for fashion industry, because the IP and all these different areas, everything touches this. So I would like to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, um, yeah, it comes close to my origin with the uh, being recruited at the World Summit on the Information Society um, in 2003 to the UN. Um, no, just recently, I, I looked at uh, UN CFACT, which is the Center for Trade Facilitation and uh, E-Business, uh, which is a, a specialized agency um, mandated by the uh, Economic and Social Council of the UN, but hosted by the Economic Commission for Europe in Geneva. And CFACT has just published two important uh, papers. They, when COVID broke out, <coughs> excuse me, they did a, a survey and they studied uh, how, how this would impact commerce globally and then drew recommendations um, on how e-commerce could be used to uh, promote trade under the conditions that uh, markets suffer from today. One of their main recommendations was that uh, we need to apply blockchain. And so there's a second paper that's exclusively an introduction to blockchain and discusses you know, what benefits it could bring to commerce globally. And the thing about blockchain that I take away from glancing, uh, looking at this debate and looking at the article is blockchain is, is a powerful tool for accountability and for transparency. So when you talk about, you know, the problems of data ownership uh, or kind of uh, creeping monopolization of information, maybe uh, one, one uh, well, we, we don't need to, to point fingers. We probably know that debate. Um, I certainly don't think anyone is taking over the world. I think the world can't be taken over. It uh, belongs to us uh, in common. I believe. <laughs> yeah, but, but all of that said, um, you know, blockchain is a, is a technology with tremendous potential for authenticating information uh, in, the, in the public sphere uh, so that it cannot be held as proprietary information. Um, and, and I've seen this over and over again with the history of technology and, and information uh, and communication technologies where you know things that we thought were impossible because they were proprietary um, became the norm. I'll give an example. Before Google search engine was, was launched, when we were all still using AltaVista or other platforms, in Commonwealth countries of the world, there was a standard that if you wanted to look at information in somebody's website, you had to go through the homepage. You had to land where they told you to land, and then you could then you could drill down, but 
Um, I was authoritatively told in 2000, the year 2000, that you could not, uh, you cannot copy a URL from a sub page of a website because that was proprietary or whatever the equivalent is in Commonwealth law. Um, that's just amazing because most, most of the data and information that's interesting is embedded below the, the home page of a website. So it's a little bit like my story of uh, having to log by hand manually emails that were sent from the Economic Commission from Europe uh, prior to 2004. You know, this is just, uh, th this was not a, a practical uh, standard. And, and it's, the technology has, has accelerated to the point where controlling information in that way just doesn't work. And so same with blockchain. I don't think, uh, I don't think blockchain is going to lead to a consolidation. I think it's going to free information. Now, I'm not the expert on blockchain, but uh, CFACT is working with uh, agencies like International Trade Center, uh, World Trade Organization, and the Economic Commission for Europe, so these three uh, intergovernmental UN agencies, um, to help businesses figure out how they can move uh, and apply these tools in ways that will both support their business plan, but at the same time also make them more accountable to, to consumers and to decision makers who are trying to protect our planet. So there's, there's uh, you know, sliver of hope. Um, I hope I, I hit it on the head. Um, I'm glad to hear you're working in, in blockchain. I hope I'll be doing some things in that in the future because I can also see its application to sustainable fashion where we can tag products and track their origin, their ethical production, um, the, their materiality, so we know that they've got uh, the right stuff in them and nothing dangerous that we wouldn't want to recover and reuse again because of its toxicity, for example. I will finish with the last question that is about your poetry and about your um, stand-up work. Because I'm, I'm very, uh, I think it's very important to finish with a, a moment <laughs> of ideas. Yeah. And I think, like you mentioned, that has been very important for your work. And especially as an engineer, I'm very excited about that. I don't know if you want to talk about, about this. Okay, well, I, I forgot to add that your comment about engineers um, taking over yeah. the world. I mean, it's really the children of engineers who will take over the world, and they turn out to be poets. Um, I'm an example. My, my father was a systems engineer. He worked on the Apollo space program, um, where, you know, engineering is extremely critical to the system. Um, but I didn't turn out that way, and I, I think we're, we're in safe hands with the next generation. About the poetry, I mean, like most of the things I've done and described, um, it didn't come through any deliberative, uh, you know, training or process. I did study literature when I was an undergraduate for a time. I studied art a little bit, you know, although I trained in political science, social science. But it came about because um, we had a rough, a rough uh, patch in our lives, um, in my family, with uh, serious illness. I won't, I won't go into that. But um, you know, being a middle-aged man, I. I kind of faced a choice. I could despair and maybe uh, engage in some bad habits that middle-aged men sometimes do when they despair. Um, you know, eat, overeat, uh, under-exercise, uh, lose sleep, and maybe do uh, other things that are bad for your health. And, and instead, I decided I would write. I would 
try to write lyric poems, um, you know, to cheer myself up in a sense, or to distract myself, or give myself some creative outlet for expression that would help me get through what was a, you know, a, a really difficult year um, when, when things were hanging in the balance. And so I gave myself a challenge. Now, this is, you know, kind of my training as a uh, as a reporting officer at the UN, I decided that I would give myself the challenge to write 100 poems in 1,000 days. That was how I put it. And that's about one poem every 10 days. I don't do the math. I'm probably wrong about that. But, you know, it pressured me to try to, you know, have an output that I could see um, headed towards this, this very artificial goal of 1,000 poems. Now, um, that actually worked. I mean, I, I'm just such a nerd that I liked having that benchmark to measure my progress. And so I started writing poem after poem after poem. And of course, I began to read them to friends. And the friends would, um, you know, sometimes be at a, uh, at a meeting, you know, in a, in a break between meetings. So it was at some UN events. So I was reading poems in Bangkok and Jakarta and New York City um, at different venues. Um, we used to have a lot more meetings than we have today, but I also um, was invited to do open mic uh, performance before a comedy troupe gave a performance at a local coffee house. So I used to hang out and write some of these poems at a coffee house. Isn't that very bohemian of me? I'm here in South Bohemia, so um, I'm permitted to be bohemian. And, and uh, the manager of the coffee house said, well, Mike, would you, uh, you know, my name is Michael. Um, Mike, would you like to perform during open mic? And so I got up uh, one evening in front of a crowd and I said, uh, my name is um, open mic. Uh, my name is Mike and I'm open to poetry. And I read a poem. And that led to a couple more invitations to read at Karua Comedy Club. And I met these uh, stand-up comedians who were pioneering English language stand-up comedy. So that led eventually to me helping them with the launch of the first International Nairobi Comedy Festival, which was held at Kenyan National Theater uh, last December. And we were pre preparing the second Nairobi International Comedy Festival. Um, I performed for the first time in, in a comedy skit. Uh, I'm a stand-up bureaucrat, so I thought that was appropriate. And um, it, got, you know, it got a few laughs, and um, basically I like to write. So I, I do write jokes for some comedians uh, who are friends, who are professional performers, um, much funnier than I am. But, uh, you know, they're, they're appreciative. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's off to the races. Um, we're trying to keep the English language comedy circuit going in East Africa, because I think that's part of the creative economy. And it, it, it will be a successful um, crossover product or export, if you will, to South Africa, to to UK, to Netherlands, to Canada, USA, hopefully someday. So that's, you know, that's, that's the inspiration for comedy. On the poetry side, it just got weirder and weirder because I kept getting invitations to go to these, you know, events, poetry slams and, and you know, weekends, uh, six, seven hour long events with, you know, 50, 50 different youth, um, you know, age 15 to age 28 mainly doing, doing weird stuff. You know, I don't know anything about rap or spoken word. And I'm sitting there with a poem in my hand, you know, reading each word and, you know, punctuating, writing, writing like it's the 18th century. And they were amazed. They were so open to it. It's like, wow, you know, they never thought that, you know, you could write a sonnet 
<laughs> okay, well, yeah, that's I guess what I do. It's it's uh, been described as vintage poetry, and I was invited to be on Kenyan television and and uh, read a couple poems there, and then I was you know parking my my car one day and and the guards from the parking lot came up and they shook my hand and they were so glad to hear um, this poetry. That's that's just amazing. So we have poetry coffee breaks at UNEP. Um, one minute, you know, instead of having a cup of joe, you just take a break from what you're doing and listen to a, a poem. It only takes, you know, one minute to listen to a poem. Um, and it can really change your day. So that's me. I now do, you know, public performances on, on, upon demand. I'm writing poems when people want to retire or they want to have a baby or maybe they had a baby or maybe they shouldn't have had a baby. But, you know, they we, we do it upon demand because if, if you can write poems, you know, don't keep it to yourself. It's not me. It's 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 for them. Oh, that's wonderful. It reminds me what happened with the... In a, well, I, 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 I correspond a lot on that, but it's very inspiring. And then, is there any place where we can actually find these poems? Uh, no place, can... no. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did share a few of them on Facebook and on LinkedIn, um, but uh, I have a book in the works. Um, I'm looking for an illustrator because I think, you know, like Lewis Carroll, um, these, these would probably go down better if they had pictures with them. Um, as a friend of mine said, when I gave him a book that had no pictures, he said, what, no pictures? You know, so, all right, we live in an anime world. Let's, let's uh, illustrate some of the poems, some of the allegorical poems I think would be really uh, freshened by some good pen drawings. And I've, I've been talking to a couple publishers. So I think, you know, a nice slim volume that can disappear quickly in the uh, ecosphere. Um, not not too many printed copies. Let's let's make it an electronic publication. That would be more digital, wouldn't it? But that's that's in the plans for next year. Um, I've got I don't know. Out of that hundred poems I was going to write, I threw away about fifty. Um, uh, another twenty or twenty five are just bad. Um, but that's that's okay. You you need to write to to hit your mark. And there's three or four that I absolutely love, and uh, I really hope I could share them. Um, and then I can you know. I can buff the book out with a few of those, those uh, middle, middle products, uh, those developmental poems showing that I'm learning my craft. But it's been a lot of fun. And, and right. I, I really love reading and, and uh, reading aloud. I think performing poetry is, you know, it's, it's an underrated um, skill to, to be a voice artist. I think that we should give more respect to that. Um, so I will, I will make an audio recording of my favorite 10 or 12 poems and try to get that out next year on online. And uh, um, you're welcome to steal any of my lines. Um, poets are famous for plagiarizing each other. I even, you know, deliberately sometimes plagiarize other poets and, you know, write, write, rewrite other people's works to, to get kind of in their head and feel the rhythm of their, their speech. Um, that's all game. If you're, uh, if you're in the poetry line, uh, yeah, it's already a dodgy thing. So why not go all out? Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been an inspiring journey. I think, well, uh, I have more questions and a lot more, but I think in two hours we'll stay for this for now. Um, and I think we'll be probably the principal. I probably will come back to you when you have the book. And, uh, and I think we'll continue talking about this. So I'll put notes about uh, a lot of uh, your work and as well United Nations Sustainable Goals and uh, all the different things about uh, the, as well the UN uh, Sustainable Fashion Platform. 
So I don't know if you want to just uh, last note or something where people can find some of your writings or some of the things at the moment, or they have to wait for the book. And then we'll oh, finish. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, Michael Stanley Jones on LinkedIn, um, Michael S. Jones on Facebook. Um, where, where you can go for more about fashion is the unfashionalliance.org, um, which doesn't mean unfashionalliance.org, uh, but it sounds like that. Um, and there you'll find you'll find some information about uh, our work as a, as an alliance. Um, other than that, you're welcome to write to me. Um, I, I love to correspond with people and, and share ideas, especially about poetry, because that's, that's really fun. Um, people are asking me, did, did you really do that? And I say, no, 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 that's just a character in a poem. And I have to explain to them the difference between the, the author and the character, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, you're welcome to write to me. It's just my name um, at un.org. So there's a hyphen in Stanley Jones. Don't forget the hyphen. Otherwise, you'll, you'll end up with some um, preacher in Kansas. No? <laughs> well, Michael, it's been a, a honor and a very big privilege. Thank you for sharing your time with us. I think we will continue uh, talking and uh, appreciate and I think all our audience will appreciate this special moment. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. And thanks all to your crew and your producer for making this happen.